Let's just um, bow our heads and and uh, commit this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this space that we can come and study your word intently. I pray that you would open its meaning up to our hearts and to our minds and that you would take it by your Holy Spirit from there to our hands and our lips. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text, as I think you already know, is from the book of Revelation and will be in chapter 8, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through to verse 5 today. Please, can you turn there now? What we will shortly read is both a climax and a connection, since it is the last of the seven seals to be opened, and this is appropriately done in a very dramatic way. However, it also introduces a new series, this time of trumpets, each heralding a different aspect of God's judgment on sin. We won't talk about those today, though I did want to make sure that we grasp the connection between this text and the ones that will be studied in the next few weeks. Before we start to read, though, I want to make an important point of an overarching nature. And you'll have heard something like it before, and you'll hear it again and again before we're done. But... In order for us to hear the message of Revelation properly, we must always bear this in mind. On the face of it, Revelation is weird and scary. It just is, and we haven't even gotten to the really, really weird bits yet. Why is it this way? Well, I believe that this is basically because we have a human, the Apostle John, trying to explain something that is fundamentally impossible to explain. A visit to heaven, seeing the creator of all things in all his might and glory at home on his throne. I reckon that trying to explain quantum physics to an amoeba would probably be easier. Therefore we might excuse John if he lacks the words to describe what he is seeing in a way that makes perfect sense to us. However, we will find that although the picture on the TV may be blurry, For those who remember such things, the vertical hold is failing. The picture is, the sound is just fine. If we therefore make it a practice to incline our heads to listen carefully instead of trying to make sense of that crazy picture, then we will find that the understanding follows perfectly well. So, let's read then. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake.
Well, that was a bit uncomfortable, wasn't it? (laughs) Maybe you were thinking, what was going on? Has Dave lost his mind or perhaps his notes? Please will someone do or say something? That might have been on your mind. And that was just for one minute of quiet. Imagine then what half an hour of silence in heaven might be like. I don't believe that it is usually, if ever, quiet under normal circumstances because God is always at work. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The angels and the saints are coming and going to do his bidding. There is a mighty chorus of praise and thanksgiving. It may be peaceful, but heaven is not a silent place. And therefore, we have to ask the question, why is there now no noise at all? So let's try to figure that out. The first thing that we can note is that the previous six seals have all had some content. A conqueror on a white horse, conflict, scarcity and widespread death on earth and so on. But apparently the seventh seal is different because it only results in silence. And that's sort of like nothing happens. There's nothing inside there. Maybe an empty seal equals silence in heaven. Well, I believe to take that position is uncomfortable for a very good reason. Let's ask ourselves if doing nothing is consistent with God's character. As creator, does God have statutory holidays, mental health days or sick days? Does he ever step away from what he has made for Smoko? No. Scripture is very clear on this. Just one familiar verse out of many that reminds us of the Lord's constant involvement in his creation is Acts 17, 27 and 28. He is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. It's very simple. If God were not constantly sustaining us, then we would simply not be. And so this alone says that half an hour of silence cannot mean that nothing is happening. If any human is around, well, they still have their being in God, as the scripture says. And so clearly the Lord is still doing something, although it may be quiet. And such an understanding is important because it means that we cannot say, as some commentators do, that the trumpet and bowl events that we're about to read next are actually the contents of the seventh seal. They're not separate things that will follow. No, we can and and we must address these things on their own. God does not ever do nothing. He always has intent and purpose. Thus, if heaven is silent, it must fit with those intents and purposes. Where else can we look? Well, in case you haven't already noticed or been told, it is a fact that the book of Revelation contains more references to the Old Testament than any other New Testament book. And so it must be helpful to investigate there to see if there is anything that can aid our understanding of the silence. Well, the first and most obvious thing is, of course, that number seven. It's significant because one of its Old Testament meanings is completeness. And that wouldn't be surprising in the context of Revelation as the final book of the Bible, would it? But it's useful to bear that idea in mind, that we are about to see God wrap something up finally as a consequence of opening the seventh seal. So just hold that as the first part of the answer. 
hold the idea that something is coming to an end. Next, there are some very relevant Old Testament scriptures relating to silence. Zephaniah 1.7 says this, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. In the next 11 verses, thereafter go on to speak of judgment and events very, mu- very much like the Revelation story here. Habakkuk 2.20 to 3.15 repeats this pattern. I won't read the whole thing, I'll just read verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And so too does Zechariah 2.13. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. So the idea of silence before the Lord at particularly significant moments is not a new one. We also know that it wasn't just understood, but it was done. I wasn't able to track down why this was so, since it seems to be a custom rather than a biblical instruction. But in the Jewish temple, whilst musical instruments and singing resounded during the whole time of the offering of the sacrifices, which formed the first part of the service, at the offering of incense, solemn silence was kept. From these scriptures and customs we get a clear picture that heavenly silence is always associated with God's judgment and that shouldn't be a surprise to find here because that's exactly what's about to happen, isn't it? So that's the second part of the answer we were looking for. This silence points to the final judgment of all things created. Note, not just a judgment but the judgment. I do have another idea though. One that I actually confess I have no way of supporting scripturally. And so I want to be very clear that this is just my idea. It's nothing more. The only one who truly knows why there is silence and what is especially significant about that silence is the Lord himself. And I wouldn't dare to speak in his place. But I still have this thought that I'd like to share because although I can't definitely say that it's true, it's also not inconsistent with what we know about God. And so maybe, maybe this will be a helpful idea for us. James 2.13 says that mercy triumphs over judgment. It's one of my favourite verses because it reminds me how blessed I am to have received the Lord's mercy when I know that I only deserve his judgment. And we should all be grateful that it isn't the other way around. It seems to me that here in Revelation this period of half an hour might just be a real life demonstration by God himself of the distance between mercy and judgment. I know that the Lord has no need to agonise over decisions because his perfect wisdom and knowledge means that he never has to stop and think things through. He is always able to do the right thing without hesitation. So it's not a question of him trying to make up his mind about what to do next here. But this scene draws a picture for me. On the one hand, there are the inhabitants of heaven, the saints, the angels, the cherubim, the elders, all the stuff we've we've read about, and they've all fallen silent because they know that something momentous is about to happen. On the other side, the Lord is on his throne, And it's almost like he's torn. He knows he must judge and wrap things up. But his mercy causes him to wait just a little longer 
Maybe a few more will turn from their wickedness and sin and repent and come into the kingdom. Here is mercy at work, triumphing over judgment, right until the very last microsecond. And it's not as though he has not demonstrated patient mercy before. Along the way to this point in time, the Lord has picked a people of his own to show what a relationship with him ought to be like. The blessings that abound from it. He saved that people from bondage to Egypt, made connection with him possible by the law in the temple, given them kings and prophets and judges, and yet these have all failed to turn the hearts of humanity back to God. So what does he do? Does he destroy the world? No, he gives himself. Christ sacrifices his own life on the cross to save us. And still, despite thousands of years of the gospel being preached, thousands of years of the glory of the Lord displayed all around us, thousands of years of his grace being given to us in all sorts of ways, we are still stubborn and stiff-necked and will not turn to him. So I ask you, if you were God, what would you do in those circumstances? Would you have waited so long for justice and put up with so much deliberate disobedience? If I think of myself, I know I wouldn't have. I would have blasted you lot to ashes and started again long ago. But that is not the wonderful love of God. So here, maybe this is what God is doing. This is what the silence, this space is for. The Lord's deep and amazing love and grace provokes him to make every possible opportunity for a person to repent, to be welcomed into the Lord's rest. And this possibility is still offered despite a veritable tsunami of offence against him. Now, if you think about this half hour of silence, possibly as a half hour of extra grace from the point of view of a believer, then your only response can be marvel and thanks and praise to the Lord. But then there's another position, isn't there? If you are not a believer, you have to ask yourself, what would you do if you knew that now, right now as I am speaking, is that final half hour? Could be. We don't know because only the Father knows the day and the hour of the final judgment. But it will come. Will you turn to him? Will you repent and take Christ as your saviour? Or will you continue on just to stubbornly face his judgment? Choose Christ and his forgiveness today then. Choose eternal life. Let's go back to our text now. At this point I think it's helpful to try to draw something of a mental picture of what's going on here. So just just try and visualise this in your minds. We've got the throne room of heaven. It's, It's an awesome place. It's dazzling and rich and opulent in construction as befitting the King of Kings. And in front of the Lord there is a golden altar with a a fire burning in it. You got that? And we have seven angels arrive and they are given seven trumpets. 
But I can't imagine them milling around and comparing trumpets because they know this is a serious moment. They form up in like a half circle in front of the Lord. Trumpets ready, but waiting for his command to blow them. And that's always a sign that something big is going to happen. We often use such a scene today for impact, although I can't imagine that Simon Cowell arriving on the set of Ekaterhuna's Got Talent will be quite as impressive. So, have you got that in your mind? Throne room, God, altar, seven angels, seven trumpets. Forget Ekaterhuna. <laughs> then another angel arrives. And he is carrying a thing called a censer. No, not a censor. He's not going to test anything. A censer is the vessel. It's basically a bowl in which incense was presented on the golden altar before the Lord in the Old Testament temple. So the priest filled the censer with live coal from the sacred fire on the altar of burnt offering. And then he carried it into the sanctuary And then he throws on these burning coals a sweet incense which sends up a cloud of smoke and fills the apartment with fragrance. And these censers there were brass while ones used on the Day of Atonement like this one here were made of gold. There's something slightly different that happens here in Revelation because the angel doesn't use the censer in quite the same way as they did in the Old Testament temple. He doesn't burn the incense that he has given in that censer. A lot of it, as the text says. Instead, he takes the incense and he throws it directly on the fire, burning on the golden altar. And the smoke from that is described as mingling, rising up with the prayers of the saints before God. That petition that they are making back in chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, the cry of the martyrs, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. That's now being presented to the Lord of heaven and earth. And we know that he is never indifferent to our cries. He may wait, he may seem to be silent, but there is truly never an instance where he will not act appropriately. And here that act is the angel's next move, where he fills the censer with fire from the altar and then he flings it on the earth. Now it seems to me that the, the way the text is written here, his action is very sudden and unexpected. It's as though matters have been proceeding at a, a measured pace up till now, just like the temple ceremony in the Old Testament. But in the blink of an eye, it just changes God's answer of judgment to the question of how long, Lord, begins just like that. And it shakes the whole world. The waiting is now over for good and no one can possibly miss judgment's arrival or be overlooked by its consequences. So there's a lesson here for us, isn't there? We're all used to the usual progression of the day. You get up. You have your breakfast, go to work, have smoko, work, have lunch, work, smoko, work. Go home, do domestic duties, eat dinner and go to bed. Repeat 365 times a year. 
It seems like that will never change. Yet it will one day. One instant, perhaps soon, perhaps far off, we will never know just when that first handful of fire will land. And therefore we should be sure to have our spiritual lives in order at all times, to be priorly, properly prepared, so that when the moment comes like the five wise virgins who trimmed their lamps diligently during the wait for the wedding feast, we will take our own place amongst those so wonderfully described back in the last chapter. A great multitude which no one could number of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Can you imagine being part of that multitude? I want to be there because the only alternative to joining that can truly be described as terrible and permanent. Why? (laughs) Why would you choose to do that? Now, there's a lot I could go on to say about the parallels between what's happening in this scene and other Old Testament scriptures. But I'd have to use language like the effect of these progressive yet virtually identical repetitions is to underscore the final judgment and that each recapitulated portrayal of the judgment fills out in more detail how it will occur. Hmm. They undoubtedly do. But I don't think it will add anything to the sermon except length. And so I will add here, I'll just end here with a few more thoughts. There is a very real danger that we will not take Revelation seriously because of its almost cartoon-like images, just like the ones we've read about today. Remember though, as I said at the beginning, this is a consequence of John trying to explain what cannot be explained by human senses. It's like trying to recreate the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel using only a blunt pencil on the end of a very long and wobbly fishing rod. The result will not be anything like the original. But, however strange John's images are, they do not change the truth contained in the book. We must not be distracted by the picture and miss the message. God really is on his throne and in charge. He may often seem to be silent and inactive, but the things written about here will come to pass. The prayers of the saints are not going unheard and at the appointed time that angel will cast fire upon the earth and that knowledge requires a personal response from each and every one of us. You cannot ignore it and hope it will go away. Next I think it's pertinent to add here that the prayers as I've quoted here by the multitude are not for me but for thee. I suspect that all of us here could spend a lot more of our prayer time in praise of God and also asking for his will to be done and his kingdom to come in addition to asking for his help with personal matters. So, when that fire arrives, will it burn you or will the blood of Christ protect you and raise you to stand together in praise?
with that multitude of saints. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this vision, this insight into your throne room. Thank you that you invite us in. Lord, I pray that the the picture and the thoughts that we're left with would not just be ones of interest or worse indifference, but they would provoke us to action for your glory and to do your will here on earth. Lord, we look forward to and long for the day when the trials that we have here on earth are at an end. And we are grateful that you have shared this book with us so that we know that they will be, that we have that certain hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.